want to, you guys can keep playing just softly. I want to read this to you. I don't know if you thought about this this morning when you got up, but I just want to give you some food for thought. In Psalm chapter 18, verse 19, listen to the words of David. He says, he brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. How many of you have ever been rescued by the Lord, that God has done something and rescued you? Let me see your hand. Yeah, now keep your hand up because David says he did it because he delights in you. He takes joy in you. Will you just give God some thanks right now that he delights in you, that he takes joy in you? I mean, that's some serious business when the creator of the universe looks down on planet Earth and says, you know, I'm going to rescue them because I like them. I'm joyous over them. That's some serious business. And then in Psalm 147, verse 4, it says, He determines the numbers of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. He says, I think I'm going to put all these stars right here, and I'm going to start naming them all. Why? Because I'm God. And despite naming all of these stars and all of these things that are out there, it doesn't say he delights over the stars, and it doesn't say he delights over the solar system, and it doesn't say that he delights over nature. It says he delights and takes joy over you. Because when I look out at the stars and the solar system and everything he's made, I'm like, oh, but you delight over me. You take joy over me. That's amazing. Will you give God another round of applause and just thank him for what he's done? Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Well, you can go ahead and be seated. I think God's got some amazing things in store today. Today, we're going to take a look at the intersection of science and faith. Are science and faith at odds? Or are science and faith, uh, do they go hand in hand? Even in Hollywood, there is this debate between science and faith. I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I only believe in science, right? I've not gotten around to being baptized, right? You watch movies, you talk to teachers. Uh, I'm married to a teacher, so I should be careful what I say there. But if if you, you know, everybody seems to think that faith is on one end, And science is on the other. And yet what we find out when you start digging back through history is that science as we know it today, science as we know it today, actually started in the 1500s. And it started in a Western Christianized society. It started and it sprung out of people who had a serious relationship with Jesus and said, I wonder how God designed his planet to work. And science was born, as we know it. People like, I'm just going to mention some names. Let's see if you remember anything at all from school. Okay? Anything at all from, do I have any science teachers in here? Because I don't want you to be offended right now. So now would be a great time if you want to go out to the bathroom. If I mention names and people in here don't remember, I don't want you to be offended. So if you're a science teacher, now's a great time to just, you know, close your eyes and plug your ears. Raise your hands if you've heard of people like Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Robert Boyle. Nobody's raising their hands. Okay, all right. James Maxwell, uh, Kelvin, Galileo. All right, you can put your hands down. Now, those are some famous... 
older scientists who had a relationship with Jesus. And when you get to heaven, you're going to get to talk to Galileo and Isaac Newton and Kepler and Boyle. But there are other people that are alive today that are the world's leading scientists in their area. People like Francis Collins. He is the world's leading geneticist. He helped map the, the, the human DNA, the human genome. He helped map that. He's the world's leading geneticist, and he is an ardent follower of Jesus Christ. John, Liddick, John Lennox, he has three doctorates from Oxford and is one of the world's leading scientists. Hugh Ross, a world's leading astronomer. James Tour, a leading chemist and professor at Oxford. Uh, Hugh Ross, one of the world's leading astronomers. And uh, let's see, Art Lewis, a professor of theoretical physics from Oxford. And the list could go on and on and on and on of people who are currently leading in their field of science who are ardent followers of Jesus Christ. Think about it. The guy who helped map out the human genome is an ardent follower of Jesus Christ. Nobody's ever, you're never going to read that in a magazine. You're never going to hear about that. In fact, here's what you won't hear. Larson and Witham did a survey, and they found that 40% of active scientists in the world today believe there is a God who answers prayer. 40%. Now, that's not over half, but when I have 40% of something, I've got a large number, right? I've got an influential number, <clears throat> right? So here's what we're learning, and here's what modern scientists will tell you. Science has to be put with other studies. That science by itself cannot Stand alone. <clears throat> so some of these scientists have come out and actually said this. They've said that science must be partnered with laws of logic, inductive reasoning, objectivity uh, of moral values. They're saying that science has to be partnered with morality. Science has to be partnered with logic. Science has to be partnered with philosophy because by itself, by itself, Science without morality is observation with no context. I'm just observing the natural world, and I have no context for anything. <clears throat> yes, I know how flowers can pollinate, and I understand photosynthesis within... That is a big scientific world, word, right? Um, I know how to use photosynthesis to make my leaves green. I understand all of this stuff. I understand how it works, but so what? What do I partner it with? So... Many scientists now are saying, well, we, we must have morality in our science. We must have logic and philosophy in our science. Otherwise, it's just nothing. You see, science, science without, uh, without context is nothing. In fact, most things that you do need context, don't they? When I read the Bible, I can't just pick a verse Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. I, I, I can't take that verse and go out there and think I'm going to be Superman. Well, I can do anything with Jesus, so I should just go out here and I can go do anything. That's not what that verse means. You must keep things in context. So if I say the green leaf, there's a green leaf. If I, if I say to any of you, there's a green leaf, what do you start doing? So what? Right? Or if I say the green leaf, you start thinking... Which green leaf? From which tree? What type of leaf? Is it a palm branch? Is it an oak leaf? Oak leaf? Is it a birch leaf? There's all kinds of leaves. And what shade of green is it? Is, is it dark green, light green? But if all you know is green leaf with no context, you're stuck. Now, if I look at you and I say, 
in my front yard is an oak tree, and the leaf is green. It's a green leaf from an oak tree. It's in my front yard. It's starting to turn fall, and so it fell off. Suddenly, you have a lot more context, and in your mind, you can picture this green leaf. You probably know the shape. You know where it's located. You know what time of year it is. And suddenly, the green leaf now has more meaning because it has context. So it's important that we understand that when we view our natural world, we have to have context. There must be context to view the natural world. Science must be partnered. Put that, uh, put that picture up if you have that. Okay, you don't have that picture. Um, there should be an aqua blue picture up there. And so, anyway, it's simply this. I was going to put a picture up there, and it shows science in the center with a ring around it. And... Right, But outside of that ring, you have studies like sociology, philosophy, spirituality, religion, uh, ethics, humanities, and so on. So science, there it is. Ta-da. All right. So science is constrained because science cannot delve into the world of philosophy. It cannot delve into the realm of spirituality, morality, religion, sociology, emotion. Right? Science is only one piece of a much larger puzzle, right? Science, by definition, by definition, this, if, you, if you look up the definition of science, this is what you get. The systematic study of the structure and behavior, ready, of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. The study of the physical and natural world. Hmm. Is there a whole lot more to our world that's not physical and not natural and not tangible? Mm Mm-hmm. You know there is, right? So by definition, science isn't equipped to study the non-physical world. Therefore, science is limited. Science in and of itself is limited. Now, does that mean that God doesn't want us to study his creation? Does that mean that God is anti-science? Does that mean that God says, okay, I I put you in charge of this amazing planet, and I want you to to run it and and do all of these things, but not study it? Does that mean that we're supposed to just blindly follow God and whatever he says? Absolutely not. I love this verse. In Proverbs 25, verse 2, out of the Message Translation, it says, God delights in concealing things. Scientists delight in discovering things. God delights. Now think about this for a minute. God takes joy in hiding things and then sitting back and watching us in science and discovery discover things. Like how do birds know when it's time to migrate? Right? You know, I had a farmer tell me uh, a few months ago, says that the reason, one of the reasons that the leaves change colors, that corn begins to die, is because plant life understands that there is less sunlight. And so it begins to get rid of, because there's less sunlight, plants understand that this is coming. And so they begin to get rid of their leaves and get rid of anything for the sole survival of the trunk of the tree. Think about that for a minute. Plant life knows, uh uh-oh, less sunlight, I need to get rid of this extra stuff. That's amazing. And God says, I take delight in concealing things so that you can 
discover things. Right? So God gets glory and joy and excitement when we discover things about the world that he's created. When you're a parent and you have a healthy baby, right, and your baby comes out and they're healthy and you take it home and all this stuff, you know that the baby has a voice. And you're just waiting for that baby to discover its voice. And when the baby's there and all of a sudden it goes, coo, and its eyes light up like, I just made that noise, right? Some of you are smiling because you've just had this experience maybe with your, with your child. You knew all along the baby had a voice. You were just waiting for it to discover. So when the baby first makes its noise and it realizes, oh my gosh, I just made that noise, the baby's like, oh, and you're like, oh, it's so cute. And you call all your friends, my baby just made a noise, Right? Then you get all excited, and then a few years later, you're like, you need to shut that noise off, right? We have a joke in the priest house, you know, when our, when our kids go, mom, 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 we turn around and go, J, 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 J. You see how annoying that is? Cut it out. <laughs> it was a joke. So, or take for, let me give you another example. Christmas morning. Your child really, we, we've done this to our child, to our child, to our children. Christmas morning, man, this is something your kid really, 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 really wants. But you know it's expensive and you're going to have to stretch your Christmas budget to get it for him. So you know what you do? You tell him, probably not going to happen, probably not going to happen, probably not going to happen. And you just totally shoot the idea down. And then Christmas morning they get up and they open this big old box. And inside of the big old box and all the stuffing in the box is a little piece of paper. And it's a clue. Right? And all of a sudden, they're like Nicolas Cage in National Treasure. And they're going from this clue to this clue to this clue to that clue. And they're going all over the house trying to find this Christmas gift. And you have it hidden and wrapped someplace else. And they go all over the house to find it. This is what Proverbs 25 verse 2 does. because It says about God. God's like, man, I can't wait for you to start discovering stuff about this planet. I can't wait for you to start discovering stuff because you're going to be happy and find joy in it, and I'm going to find joy in it. I love hiding things from my kids and letting them discover it. That We do that all the time with our kids, right, with, with presents or with a baby that first has its voice. And so it's natural inside of us to hide things and then let people begin to discover. God knew that we would find joy in discovery. Just like we know that our children will find joy in discovery, whether it's in their voice or their Christmas present. Why? Because we get glory, we get joy out of it, and so do they. I mean, it's a win-win. So science is a method for us to find happiness and discovery in God's creation. Think about that for a minute. It's a win for God because he takes pleasure in us when we discover things and we take uh, pleasure and excitement and joy when we discover things. And so both sides win. Both, both sides are excited and joyous. Now, if things are intentionally hidden in nature, as King Solomon says, that must mean there's a design. And if there's a design in something, there's a purpose in it. If there's a design, there's a designer. And if there's a design, there's purpose. So the question now is, what did the designer intend? Right? Because if we go to the, let's just for a minute, I want to leave you with that thought. And I want to go to the other side of the coin. 
If we go to the other side of the coin, the other side of the coin says there is no God, that we've simply evolved over billions of years, and there's really no purpose other than cells have evolved over billions and billions of years. Essentially, what they're saying, what that says is that we are nothing more than neuromechanical machines. And all we do is respond and react to our environment and we're just responding and reacting, responding and reacting because we are comprised of individual cells that just respond and react, respond and react, and therefore in our brains we respond and react, we respond and react. We are a big reactive response to the world around us. Well, if all we do is respond and react because all of our cells respond and react and we're just evolved to react and respond, then we, (laughs) think about this for a minute, then there is no logic, there is no reason, there is no morality, there is no truth, because we're just reacting to everything. We're just responding to everything. In fact, I love what, in his book, Where the Conflict Lies, Alvin uh, Plantiga, who is an uh, analytical philosopher and professor, he writes this in his book. There is indeed a science-religion conflict, all right, but it is not between science and the theistic religion. It is between science and naturalism or evolution. That's where the conflict really lies. Because if we're just a bunch of cells that have, re- uh, that have evolved, then we can't logic, we can't reason, we're just responding to our environment. He says there's the real conflict, because then how do, how do we logically know what we're doing. The real enemy of science isn't faith, it's naturalistic evolutionary atheism. That's the real enemy of science. You say, why? Why is that, Tyson? Because evolution isn't concerned about truth, evolution isn't concerned about morality, it's not concerned about ethics. Evolution is concerned with two things, the propagation of the species and survival of the fittest. Two things, that's all it's concerned about. If all I'm concerned about is propagating my species and the survival of the fittest, I have no need for truth, I have no need for morality, and I have no need for ethics. I'm not saying that you can't be ethical. I'm not saying you can't have morality if you're an atheist. By all means, I've met some atheists who are more moral and more ethical than Christians. I'm simply saying they they have no reasoning to base it on. Right? And if we're just a bunch of cells responding to our environment, then we can't scientifically and logically prove evolution even happened. Now, I know I just jumped off the deep end on you, but I want if you really write, just write that down and go home and I would think on it for a minute. Think on it at halftime of the football game or whatever. But if you really think about it, evolution itself is an enemy of science, not Christian faith. But, If, and we know it's true, morality exists, ethics exists, we can use reason and logic, then we're not some neuromechanical machine just responding to our environment trying to propagate the species and survival of the fittest, right? If all of those things exist, there must be a reason. Again, science is looking at the natural world, not the unnatural world of thought and logic and reason and morality and ethics, etc., Right, And here's the reason. We are to use our faith because faith is logical. 
Did I just, did I just blow anybody's minds with that comment? Faith is logical. See, we're told that faith is blind. That faith is just, it's just blind faith. You just believe it and you don't have anything to stand on. That's not true. And that's certainly not the way the writers of the New Testament use the word faith. Look at me, look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 3. Now faith is what? Confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Okay? So, faith, what he's saying is this. Faith is not blind even when we can't see. We see evidence of a physical world all around us. Right? We see evidence of a physical world. You walk out there, and it's raining, and there are clouds, and there's sunshine, and there's, and there's rabbits, and there's all of these things in our physical world. And that then allows us to reasonably infer this specific design of this world had to come from someplace. Because when we send out satellites and all sorts of stuff, and they go, we found life on another planet. They're not talking about, you know, green men. They're talking about little tiny microbes that can't reason, that don't have logic, that don't have ethics, etc. Right? So Paul says, it's only logical to infer that our physical world came from something that you can't see. You say, Tyson, that's silly. But that's exactly what the Big Bang says. So whether it's Christianity or the Big Bang, Big Bang says there was nothing and then something, poof, Everything that we know is material and time all came in existence from nothing. Now, math by itself, math alone says if you have one times nothing, zero, it's zero. If I have a billion times zero, it's zero. You can't take nothing and create something unless there is a being who sits outside of the natural world and is not held by our natural laws then that being would be allowed to do whatever seems illogical to us because he's operating, it's operating from a different world. That, my friend, is logical. And so Paul says that faith is the confidence. Faith is logical, right? When was the last time you took a brown paper bag and just folded it up and left it there for 10 years and came back and something was in it? Nothing brings nothing. Unless there's something sitting outside of nothing that can create something within the nothing. You guys follow that at all remotely? I think I followed my own thought. <laughs> right? Let me give you an example. Let's say, that, let's say that you're a mountain man, right? And you're like, all you've ever known is the mountains. And all you've ever known is nature. And you take a stroll through the woods... And while you're taking a stroll through the woods, you stumble upon a watch laying on the forest floor. Now, you've never seen a watch. You have no idea what a watch is. You don't even really know what it is. But you look down at it, and you pick it up. And you start to look at it. And you're like, this is odd. I know from my, because I'm a mountain man, I create a sundial, and I can read a sundial because I'm a mountain man, right? And so I'm like, well, this says it's 3 o'clock. My sundial says it's 3 o'clock. Suddenly I realize that this is a time 
something to do with time. Now, I have to then infer that because it's not anything that I've ever seen before, I have to infer that there must have been a watchmaker. I also have to infer that there must have been some place where he got these components. There must have been some place where he put this thing together. Now, I don't know how it got in my path. I don't even know how it got here. But I know that there must have been a watchmaker. And there must have been a factory or someplace where it was put together. That inference and that belief, we have a word for that. First off, how many of you would say that 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 thought is logical? That if you find, let me see your hands, if you think that finding a watch in the woods and suddenly you see, it's logical, it had to come from someplace. It didn't come from the tree or the rabbits, right? Yeah, it makes logical sense. You believe, okay, well, it had to come from someplace. There had to be a maker. We have a word for that. It's called faith. I have faith that there was a watchmaker. I believe, I have faith and trust that there was a place where he put this together. That's called faith. Faith in and of itself is logical. And Paul says that. He goes, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. Faith is assurance about what we do not see. I don't see God. I don't see heaven. But I look at the world around me, I'm like, There has to be something more because every time we get information back about our universe, we continue to be the only ones. And things are too well designed. And I I don't have time to get into how your cells work and all of that stuff. It's simply to say that when you were out in that forest and you saw the watch, you had to infer that there was a maker. That's called faith. But have you ever seen the watchmaker? Did you ever see the factory? Did you ever see the designer? No, but you had faith that there's a watchmaker. Because it's logical based on what you're observing. Faith in and of itself is logical. Why? In Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those. He rewards who? Those who, who half-heartedly seek him. Those who occasionally decide to seek him. That's not what it says, is it? What's the word? Earnestly. He rewards those who earnestly, wholeheartedly seek him. He rewards them. So why is there a design? Why is there order? Why is there a creation? So that we can earnestly seek him by faith, saying, I've never seen the watchmaker, but I'm too smart to know that this cannot exist without a designer. And so I believe there's a designer. And God says, congratulations, now earnestly start seeking me and have faith in me and trust me, because without that, you can't please me. And so when we come to God in faith and in trust, God, this is who I am, and I'm jacked up, and I got problems, and I don't understand what's happening in my life, and this makes no sense to me. I trust you, and I believe in you because everything else around me points to you. I need your help. Your faith in God now pleases him because, you know what, you trust me, you believe in me, you've got faith in me, and now that you're earnestly seeking help and earnestly seeking me, I'm going to begin to reward you. Right? 
Look what Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without an excuse. What Paul is saying is this. Every time you go to the beach and you witness the vast expanse of the ocean and you are in awe, that is an invisible quality of God being made visible to you. The vast expanse of God's knowledge, the limitlessness of God's knowledge leaves us in awe. That is the invisible quality of God being shown in a physical way on our planet. Every time you go to a waterfall, you know, I've been to some waterfalls in my hikes, and I'm just like, and it's kind of, I, I've really never admitted this publicly, but when I get close to a waterfall, I get extremely intimidated. It's just water and a long cliff. It's intimidating. Why? The power of the water, the sound, it's intimidating, right? That's an invisible quality of God. The power, the sound is a quality of God. It's an invisible quality of God being shown in our natural physical world to say there's a God and there'll be a day that when you encounter him, whether it's the expanse of the ocean, whether it's the intimidation of a waterfall and the power of a waterfall, you will experience all of those feelings when you encounter God. And so Paul says, all of these invisible qualities of God are being shown in our natural world so that all of humanity who's ever been born, they do not have an excuse for not searching out God and searching for him. You say, well, what's the purpose of all of this? Here's the purpose of this, and we're closing this morning. Your purpose, and the reason that this planet exists, and the wonder, and the nature, and all of this stuff of the planet, and, and science, it exists so that it will point us, so that we can discover God, and it'll point us to God. We need to enjoy his creation And find ourselves at a place of both logic and faith. That logic and faith go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Science and faith, they go hand in hand. They work together. When science first came about, if I go back to what I said initially, when, I, when science first came about in the 1500s as we know it today, it came from great men of faith. If you've ever read Isaac Newton's commentary on the entire Bible, you'll find out that Isaac Newton wasn't just a scientist, he was a theologian. Because his stuff, his spiritual writings are deep. Galileo, the same way. They sought out their framework and their worldview was that God has given us a wondrous place to live. We should go out in faith and begin to discover how it works. That was their intent. In fact, it wasn't even until the turn of the century, 1900s, where a professor wrote a book and talked about how science and faith are at odds. It took hold in academia and in universities, and they began to propagate that in the early 1900s. It wasn't until that point that science and faith were excluded. Up until, for the first 300 years, faith and science went hand in hand. 
It's only been in recent history have they started to diverge. God put us on a planet for us to enjoy, to point us to him and say, wow, you are an amazing, awesome God. And if we keep science in perspective, that it's only designed to look at the natural world and we allow the other areas of academia, of spirituality and religion and humanity and philosophy and so on, if we allow those to begin to shape around with science, we'll find that the full human experience, everything that we have points us back to our creator says, I love you. Now believe and have faith because I put watches all over the place. All you've got to do is logically begin to believe in me. In closing, I'm going to leave you with this quote from Robert Jastrow, who is uh, one of the leading American astronomers. He says this. He says, the, si- the scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He, he is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. He says, here are all these scientists climbing the mountain of ignorance, and they think they finally reached the precipice of the mountain. And as they pull themselves over, they find theologians that have been sitting there for centuries, saying, yeah, this is what the Bible says all along. The man who discovered the currents in the ocean, the undercurrents in the oceans, and he figured out how to sail faster, he found it in the Bible. It's chalked full of information that scientists to this day use to make discoveries. I want to encourage you today that your God has surrounded you. And if he's surrounding you and he cares that enough, that much about you, and cares about you enough to surround you with all of that, surely he cares enough to help you out of your problems. And if he delights in you, he will rescue you. He will provide support. Let's stand up this morning. Proverbs 25.2, again, God delights in the concealing of things and scientists delight in discovering things. God wants us to win. He wins. We work together to make discoveries. God's in all of it. My question to you this morning is this. Do you find yourself in God? And do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is living and indwelling in you through the Holy Spirit? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you know that Jesus is the Lord of your life? I'm going to ask Aaron and Lori to come up to this side. I'm going to ask uh, Steve um, and to come up on this side. And if you're here this morning as we close out in song and you need prayer for anything, I want you to come forward. They want to pray with you. If you're going through a hard time, going through a dilemma and you need prayer, listen, God has a plan for you. From the smallest strand of DNA to the expanse of the universe, he says, I take delight in you, not all of that. I don't delight in all that. I delight in you. So as we sing this out, if you need prayer for anything, come up and connect with the God who delights in you.